0: Good morning everybody. I'm 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 delighted actually that we that we went with the idea of standards as the theme for this conference. When we discussed it in the UCAD committee, I, I guess we were we weren't sure whether people would, would I don't know find it glamorous and shiny and sexy enough. But the fact that so many people signed up so quickly is such a good sign. Because for me standards are incredibly important and because I run a data aggregator, it's something that I'm thinking about all the time. So today, I actually, I decided to really go for it and talk about the behind the scenes, the under the bonnet kind of stuff. So I'm hoping I'll take you with me on that, Um, the sort of stuff that we do kind of every day that relies on thinking about standards. So when you're thinking about discovery, I think quite often what we do is we think about our front end, our web front end, and, and that's our kind of focus, that's what we put centre stage quite often. And, and I want to kind of argue that that's all well and good and it's an important thing to have, but I think maybe we should start to think about kind of putting the data centre stage and thinking first and foremost about the data, which can be quite difficult to do because data can seem to sometimes sit in isolation a bit. It's a bit difficult to grasp data formats, what you can do with data, how these things work. For a lot of us, for a lot of you out there, I'm sure, you have a system, and you think in terms of the system, providing, usually providing a web front end, or you have some kind of web front end onto the system. And of course, data makes up the third part of that triangle, all of them important and I would argue data is the most important of all really but I think what quite often happens is that the data ends up being somewhat hidden we think in terms of the system and how the data is (coughs) in the system is a little bit of a mystery we're not always quite aware of what's going on there so we just end up with the system and the web interface for us it's actually very different We kind of start with the data because we're taking all your data. So that's the position we're starting from. So this is what the world starts to look like a bit to us in the archives hub. We hold data as an aggregator. We hold data from archives all over the country. And the way we think is in terms of all the different data sources that we might (laughs) take in. So this is kind of an example. It's not an exhaustive list, obviously. But we look at taking data in from archival software systems such as Carmen Adlib, Archivist Toolkit, ICA Atom. We're working to try and take data in where people want to use Excel and creating an Excel template so that uh, we can take in data where people want to use Excel. So we're working with Bill Stopping at the British Library. Uh, <laughs> again, you know, looking at bringing their data into the archives hub. What do we need to do to facilitate that? We're working with a number of Welsh archives, looking at their different systems. We've gone to talk to them. We've talked to them individually about their data. We have to think about how to bring all that data together effectively. So it all starts there. But for us, there's then the second very important step, which is the kind of data out side of things. Data in, data out. So for us, yes, we have the website, and I'd probably be lying if I didn't say, yes, our website is probably our most important front end onto our data. It is the one that we, at the moment, prioritise and spend more time thinking about. But I think increasingly, we think about these different ways that people access data, and I think this is kind of what Nick was talking about, you know, the idea that there needs to be a data flow. We need to get the data out there to the people that want to use it. We need to think more in terms of our website being one way, one channel into access data, but there can be all kinds of other ways. So, for instance, we can provide data to AIM25, because AIM25 is another portal, it provides another sort of service. We can provide data to the Archives Portal Europe, to Europeana. We can output our data as linked data. It, it, It means that the archival data that you provide into us starts to kind of work harder, it starts to get out there into the world in different ways for different purposes. So that's kind of my world a lot of the time. That's my world uh, with the website as part of it, but it's this data flow that is all important. So going back to the kind of data and thinking about this idea of the data being at the heart of things. I want you to maybe contextualise it a bit from the point of view of what we do, and this is where the slightly more techy stuff comes in with data standards. And this is my kind of summary of <coughs> where the data sits of the context that we might think of data in, in terms of aggregating your data, aggregating archival descriptions. We work with encoded archival description because encoded archival description is an XML standard for archival description, we have an EAD editor which allows people to create EAD descriptions to that standard. We use XSLT, which I'll come on to, which allows us to transform data to uh, put the data into different contexts. We add index terms because they're another way that we can structure data, put the data out in different ways, have different channels into the data. And we have APIs, machine access to the data. Because, again, that allows people to discover and use the data in different ways. And all of these kinds of things are underpinned by the standards that we use. So (coughs) I'm thinking about those standards all the time. um, and, and, And the ways that we use them and the different standards and the way that they do or don't cooperate with each other. So I just wanted to uh, give you a few examples of of the kind of data flow that happens when we're working with data in the archives hub. So uh, one of the things we're doing, in fact, I was working on on the train on the way down as it happens, is uh, a lot of you guys out there, how many people have CALM here? Yes, you see, that's about what I would expect, you know, probably (coughs) over half the people here. So a lot of you use Calm, that's absolutely great, works for you, it has all sorts of you know uh, uh, management uh, functionality, that's not what we're in the business of, we just want to get the data out there and help it to be discovered. So what we want to do is to be able to take the data that you've created and put into your own system and make it discoverable through an aggregator. And so to do that we have um, a process which... (laughs) I mean, it, it looks incredibly simple when you put it in diagrammatic form. Maybe it isn't quite that simple <laughs> in practice. But um, the important thing here is that this is where EAD, encoded archival description, acts as this data exchange format. And people often talk about that. And when I used to go and talk about EAD a lot more and, and train people in EAD, I think, I think some archivists didn't quite understand and thought maybe, well, no, I don't want to use EAD. I use Calm or I use AdLib or something <laughs> like that. But it's not really about that. It's about EAD acting as a means to transport data. It's like a transportation mechanism, if you like. So if you can get EAD out of CALM through a CALM export, then what we have to do um, is a little bit more work in terms of transformation because one of the things with EAD is there are kind of different flavours. It's quite a permissive standard, which is is a, a... Pain in the proverbial. <laughs> Not the time for me. I wish it was much stricter, and there will be a lot less to do. But no, um, we get all sorts of different EAD, and you will be amazed at the differences we get with just calm exports in EAD. You'd think, right, you've got one, you you you, you know, you've done one, you've done them all, kind of thing. But no, it doesn't work like that, I'm afraid. People manage to use the fields in different ways. They use this field, they don't use that field, they use this field for that, they don't use the reference field for the reference, they use the other field for the reference, and they want that reference, or they don't want that reference, and it just kind of goes on and on (coughs) in this kind of way. So, there is quite a lot of work we have to do. We have to look at the variations in data, and uh, we are, at the moment, writing style sheets to kind of transform um, the data into the hub flavour of EAD, if you like. So that's one of the projects we're working But of course, once we've done that, and once we've done it <coughs> with, with several institutions, and therefore we keep adding bits to our transformation to say, well, if it has this, do this. And if it has this but doesn't have that, do this. It's that kind of process. Um, we'll gradually um, get a style sheet that will work successfully with more and more calm data. Bingo. Uh, another example is the Genesis Portal for Women's Studies, which I don't think is live still <coughs> because of the whole move of the Women's Library to LSE. But I'm going to use it as an example because it was live and it was beautiful. Because that, w- that was um, a really lovely model. That's the sort of thing we want to be doing. You have the Archives Hub has the data, stores the data. Genesis is a subject-based portal, uh, in this case, for women's studies. So, you know, why replicate the data twice? Why store the data twice? Why not just take data from the archives hub? When people search Genesis, we use our machine-based interface, our API, which goes and asks the archives hub for the relevant relevant data in response to the search query that somebody's done in Genesis. And the data comes back. Um, Our style sheets were partly used by Genesis, which is why I've got the smaller one there. So our star sh- style sheets were used to help them create their own style sheets to then just display the data, because that's all they needed to do. We had the data, we looked after the data, we updated the data, so on and so forth. They just need to display the data. So it's a much more efficient <coughs> process to do something like this if you're going to have kind of subject-based portals. Another route into the data, more people getting to use archives. So, it's a result. With linked data, uh, some of you may know that we've been quite heavily involved in creating linked data for archives in the UK. So, again, you've got this kind of steps. Uh, I- in this case, we start with the Archives Hub data, which is in XML, which is in the AD. And again, <coughs> we're using star sheets. We're saying, okay, we need to transform this data and create RDF XML. Oh, there are are other formats for um, linked data, but RDF XML is is the one that most people would think of. So you've transformed the data. And the great thing is, once you've done that, you've got a head start because you've got standard XML data. So it's not so difficult to transform it to create the (coughs) RDF XML. And once you've got that, you're kind of part of the global linked data community. You're no longer in the archives world. You've got your data in this standard that is that is global, that is globally recognised, and therefore you can use all of these wonderful tools that are out there, free <laughs> tools, tools that people have built. We've used tools created by people in Europe, in America, in Australia, because they've created those tools to work with RDF XML. It's absolutely great, you know. I mean, again, there's a bit more work than just, you know, the, it, the tools give you something, but you still have to do a bit more work, but still. We've managed to do some name reconciliation linking to the virtual international authority file and to DBP and so forth, all through work that other people have done to make data flow through, through the world much easier. So another really good example. Another one we're working on at the moment is to be able to create those people that contribute to the Archives Hub for them to have their own... Uh, web front end. So a lot of you here, you know, may use Calm or similar software, you may have your own web interface, but quite a lot of our contributors don't actually have the resource to uh, have a kind of commercial system, and they could do with some kind of, you know, efficient, effective search retrieve for their own descriptions. So same kind of idea. The Archives Hub EAD sits there in our central store. We use our machine-based interface So from the microsite, somebody searches the data, whoever it might be. We're working with the University of Salford, Brighton Design Archive, various others. And they search through our API. It's a machine-based search into the Archives Hub data. And the result comes through. And again, our style sheets work to transform that into um, something that looks quite similar to the Archives Hub data, has the tables of contents and the hierarchies and all the things that you would expect. Again, it's not a trivial thing to do. I don't want for these diagrams to give you the idea that just because you have data in a standard, it makes everything dead easy, but it makes it a damn sight easier than it would be if we were all talking different languages, that's for sure. So I think that's uh, mainly what I wanted to say. Uh, The last one that I wanted to highlight is the Archives Portal Europe, and you'll be finding out a little bit more about that a bit later and what I've rather mysteriously called the data wrangling side of stuff that we're doing with the Archives Portal Europe. So, I just think that I want to give the idea that when you're thinking about discovery and what to put on the stage, it's kind of, it's not just about your web front end, I suppose you could call it a cast of thousands maybe, and that's the way that we need to be thinking, I think. Thank you very much. I shall hand over to Jeff.. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.